From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, March 12th. I'm Marco Werman. Afghans want justice for the 16 villagers killed on Sunday, allegedly by a lone American soldier. I think this is the legitimate rights of Afghans to ask for an open court for that terrorist. We'll get more reaction from both Afghanistan and here. And later in the program, the new U.S. ambassador to Russia plays it straight. We got nothing to hide. Our policy is on the table. Our cards are down. Diplomacy and Russia ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Pentagon continues to investigate why a U.S. Army sergeant allegedly walked out of his base in Afghanistan and proceeded to massacre 16 villagers. Several of the dead were children. The suspect is now in U.S. military custody. American officials say that all indications suggest he acted alone. Civilian deaths at the hands of foreign forces have long been a source of tensions in Afghanistan. Sunday's incident has sparked a new wave of anger aimed at the U.S. This man in Kandahar province, where the killings took place, said people there want a full investigation. He also said the deaths make him want to join the Taliban to fight against U.S. and other foreign forces. Many Afghans want more than just an investigation into the incident. They want justice, says Afghan member of parliament Shukriya Barkzai. This is the time that we need more trust building between two nations and two governments. This is the time that we have to work hard. I think this is the legitimate rights of Afghans to ask for that terrorist. We call that kind of attack as a terrorist attack. And I hope the United States of government also allowing their terrorist citizens to be prosecuted on an open court inside Afghanistan. It's early still to look for a U.S. government statement on where the suspect might be prosecuted, but the Obama administration has rushed to make it clear that the attack will not change its strategy in Afghanistan. Here's Pentagon spokesman Captain John Kirby. What's not going to happen is that the the mission is going to suffer as a result of this. Um, It's tragic. It's a very tragic incident, but it would be a far greater tragedy for us to let this affect what we're doing writ large in the country. What U.S. forces want to do is to gradually hand over security responsibilities to the Afghan military. The process demands trust, and that trust had already been frayed by several other incidents lately. There have been several shootings of U.S. and foreign troops by Afghan soldiers, and there was the burning of the Korans by the American military. Najib Azizi is a professor of public policy and economics at Kabul University. He says many Afghans are struggling to comprehend how a lone American soldier could have massacred 16 villagers. First thing is the lack of information. People really cannot understand what happened and how it happened and why it happened. They only know that people were innocently killed by someone who had lost his mind and that's it. And the second 
second thing is that it has happened in a remote area in the south. Today in Kandahar there was a protest. In Helmand there was a small protest. However, it has not yet become the countrywide protest. Because as we remember, just a couple of weeks back on the Quran burning issue, there were very massive protests. I, I want to ask you about uh, the, the Quran burnings uh, at Bagram Airfield, uh, which happened last month. Six days of violent protests and clashes ensued. Here we're talking uh, people being killed and some of them burned versus symbolic books being burned. Why is this different? Over 99% of the Afghan population are Muslim. So the issue of Quran is a bit uh, different from what uh, it could be interpreted in the West, merely a book. The Muslims are devoted towards this book, and uh, anything that uh, shows a disrespect towards uh, the book means disrespect towards their uh, religion. The burning of Quran hurted the feelings of the Afghan masses across the country. There is no comparison. Life of the innocent Afghan citizens, of course, they were very important. But the issue of the Quran was specifically uh, related to the faith of people. Professor Azizi, do, do you think Afghans are becoming desensitized to these kinds of killings? The partnership of the international community, in particular the United States, uh, with the Afghan people after the fall of Taliban, it was not a love marriage. It was a forced marriage for both parties. Afghans still do understand the value of the presence of international forces in Afghanistan. The young generation, especially the generation aged between 18 to 28 or something, they are the people who are maximally enjoying the, the situation. The freedom of speech, the freedom of what they want to wear, the freedom of uh, where they want to go. These are the things which very much attract the young generation or the youth of this country. The students are having balanced view. They do not get very emotional. Of course, emotions comes when incidents like this happen. Mm. But they're able to control their emotions and be realistic that, okay, we do need the international community. So when people are doing good, sometimes the bad things also happen. But uh, we have to see the goodness and the badness on a proper scale, That uh, which one is more heavier. And, of course, what they have experienced over the last 10 years, they really appreciate what support international community has provided to Afghanistan. Najib Azizi is a professor of public policy and economics at Kabul University. Army National Guard Sergeant John Israelson served two tours, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. John, help us understand here how this soldier involved in Sunday's incident was able to simply walk off his base in Afghanistan. How easy is that? From my experience, where I was located in eastern Afghanistan, I don't see how that could have been possible, uh, simply because there is 360-degree perimeter security watching at all times, but... You know, if, if there's a will, there's a way. There are certain holes within the wire. Uh, he may have coordinated with somebody else, but for me, it was an anomaly and a tragedy. So I don't know how it happened, but I'm sure it's possible on other bases. And when you say the wire, you're talking about the perimeter of the base. Isn't that perimeter usually manned by other soldiers or even military police? Yeah, there are other soldiers on every guard tower with optics that allow them to see far away. But there's also a very weak spot, in my opinion, which was the firing range, where we would zero our weapons in. A lot of the time, some of that wire has been shot out, so there's holes in it. And it, it was a security risk for us because it also allowed enemy personnel to enter our base. And that did happen on one occasion. 
And what about the enemy, the, the Taliban? Are they watching as uh, U.S. military walk on and off the base? I mean, is that also a danger? That is also a danger. I, I've never seen personally a soldier walk physically off of a base. It's always within a vehicle, an up-armored vehicle, and they, they know exactly where our entry control point is. But they, they're also very incapable of attacking at that point because we have the most security at the front of that fob, at the beginning where you come in and out. That's where the security really is focused on. Now, this soldier was a staff sergeant. What would a staff sergeant's relationship be uh, typically with the village? The, the staff sergeant is going to be on the ground. In, in my experience, at least in, in my job function, they would go out and they would interact with the locals. Um, they would delegate authority to who was primarily the language guy or who was the radio guy. So he would coordinate, and there would be no specific job function for a staff sergeant other than to delegate authority as to where he wanted to go. In my experience, both of my staff sergeants were on the ground, on the flanks of our convoy, securing um, the actual ground itself for command wires and pole string explosive devices. You know, we hear a lot about the desire to win hearts and minds uh, among the the local Afghans. Uh, Is there a desire amongst U.S. military to take the hearts and minds approach to its next logical step, to, to mingle with the locals, or is there a natural suspicion of anything on the other side of the wire. It's a flip of the coin with the personality of a soldier. Uh, myself, I loved mingling with the locals. I loved trying to learn Pashto. Other soldiers in my same position had no desire to speak to the locals, to shake their hands, but there is a matter of incorporating the hearts and minds with talking to them, with you know playing games with the kids, making them paper airplanes. And that, for me, was the most memorable part of my deployment. But there are soldiers who... I use the word Islamophobic, who have no desire, whether it's they've lost a buddy and they blame that village, they don't want to look at somebody, or they just naturally have that propensity in their personality for rage and hatred. But it's really hit and miss. I would say 50-50. Some guys love the mission. Some guys don't believe in that mission. And, of course, uh, with uh, still little information uh, coming in from uh, this one episode, hard to say what actually motivated uh, this one staff sergeant. Um, It does seem, though, that one of the biggest problems for, uh, at least on the military side, Afghans in in their Afghan National Army and and American soldiers, is that after more than a decade, there doesn't seem to be a lot of trust. Why do you think uh, Afghan military and American military still can't trust each other? I think there's such a different... There's so many different customs and courtesies, showing the bottom of your feet, something that we do flagrantly in America. There's no offense behind that. Um, But an Afghan soldier may not interpret our ignorance of that custom uh, to an extremely disrespectful gesture. And explain the Um, showing the bottoms of your feet. What what is that a tradition? Where is that a tradition? um, My understanding is within Muslim culture, it is disrespectful to show the soles of your feet to anybody, and it, and it looks intentional when you're propping them up on a chair. So that, that would be something that would become an issue. Also, in my opinion, more of a tactile culture. They're more touchy. The men are willing to you know hold pinky fingers and walk down the street. And I don't look at that as a bad thing, but some soldiers feel uncomfortable. So when they're being touched by the Afghan soldiers, they may push them back or say something disrespectful. And we had a great working relationship. We had six attachments from the Afghan National Army who were a part of our family. They, they were goofy in their own way. They had their own nicknames. And they, they would fight just as hard as us. They would push the ground just as hard, maybe not as skilled, but we trusted their instincts more than ours. They've lived there. They know what to look for. 
So we nurtured that relationship because our command made sure that we did not disrespect them. And we never had the problem, but I can see that falling through the cracks, and I can see some soldiers really offending the Afghans, disrespecting Islam, and, and having a, an attack ensue because of that. Uh, you can you can certainly see the room for miscommunication. Sergeant Israelson, uh, we, we got your name because we solicited uh, reactions to this, uh, the, this tragedy from our online community of veterans. Uh, I, I'm just wondering why you did write in. Why is this an important issue for you? Oh, I wouldn't say it helps bring closure, but it helps allow my story to go out and to hear other veteran stories of what it is like to come home. Because that was, from what I understood, the spotlight. What's it like to return home? And some guys have really struggled, and I don't feel like I really have. And I think that's because I didn't nurture any hatred. I didn't harbor any bad feelings about what happened. And I came back and said, look, I'm, I'm physically in the United States, and I'm mentally going to stay here. There's no reason for me to live in Afghanistan in my mind. Meanwhile, just being a drone here in the States, and I wanted to let some of the population know that there are guys that return and they're valuable members without being held up on their deployment. And there are soldiers who get held up. And, and those are the ones that need help. Sergeant John Israelson, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Marco. Like Sergeant Israelson, you can join our online community of veterans and their families and share your stories. Text the word RETURN to 69866 on your cell phone, and we'll let you know how to take part. It'll cost no more than a regular text message. That's the word RETURN to 69866, or go to slash return. And listen in this Friday. We're planning a special program on homecoming veterans. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's a tense moment for U.S.-Russia relations. The two nations have been at odds over what to do about Syria, and Washington has expressed concern over allegations of fraud in Russia's two most recent elections. That includes a vote just over a week ago that returned Vladimir Putin to the presidency. The Kremlin, meanwhile, has been critical of what it sees as American meddling with Russia's internal affairs. Michael McFall is the new U.S. ambassador to Russia. He's currently in Washington for a brief visit. McFall says the administration did note problems with the recent vote, but also saw something to be pleased about. We also, however, in our statement noted the positive trend of more Russians participating in the electoral process and really an unprecedented spike in participation of electoral observers. Uh, Marco, you and I know that we've known each other for a long time. I've spoken on your program for a couple of decades probably. And I've followed elections previously very closely. I've written books about it as a professor. Never has there been this kind of scrutiny by Russian society. So you see a process of renewal now going on between the Russian government and Russian society in terms of how to reform their political institutions. There's a real debate going on in Russia today that was not going on just six months ago. And it's a debate between the government and society, not just society debating with itself. Let's talk briefly about two key issues where Russia and the U.S. need to cooperate. You mentioned one earlier, uh, Syria. Help us understand Moscow's motivations vis-a-vis Syria. On Syria, and as you know, uh, Secretary Clinton and the Foreign Minister Lavrov are meeting today in New York to discuss this uh, again at the highest level. 
there's actually more agreement than I think people understand about the the necessity to do something, to act, what the final outcomes might be. But there's a big disagreement about the means. The Russian perspective is that they do not want the UN Security Council voting to decide who leads what country. That's that's what they say to us in all, all of our meetings. And we say back to them, we as responsible, important players in the international system have an obligation to stop the violence, to stop the atrocities that are being conducted inside Syria. That's part of our, our obligations as, as UN Security Council members as well. And that's the difference in principles that we've been arguing over for the last several weeks. If Russia doesn't want to negotiate uh, Syria through the UN Security Council, how do they see the negotiations happening? It's not clear. It's not clear to me. Can you imagine Russia shifting on its position on Syria somehow? Or will it stand by President Bashar al-Assad? Well, they would take issue with the characterization that they're standing by the president of Syria. You know, we have a disagreement about that, but they uh, emphatically say that's not their policy. They're against foreign intervention in the internal affairs of other countries. All I know is uh, our policy is to continue to engage on this. But we believe in the international system. We believe in the United Nations. We believe in the UN Security Council. And therefore, we're going to continue to try to engage with the Russians so that we can find a common cause when it comes to Syria. And Iran. What about Iran? What's it going to take for Washington and Moscow to get on the same page in terms of how to address Tehran's nuclear ambitions? Well, Iran, by contrast, I think you've seen more agreement and cooperation uh, over the last several years, not just over the last several weeks. We do have a disagreement about additional sanctions. The Russians think we've pushed the Iranians too far into the corner. We think that pressure is making them reconsider negotiations. But on the general outlines of what we're trying to do, I would say we're working pretty closely with the Russians uh, when it comes to Iran right now. Let me ask you this, Ambassador McFall. Um, Shortly after your arrival in Russia in January, you met with opposition activists. Since the Kremlin continually raises suspicions about the U.S. role in promoting democracy, wasn't that a dangerous thing to do diplomatically? From the very first weeks and months of the Obama administration, we articulated a strategy which we called dual-track engagement. And by that, we say very clearly we're going to engage constructively with the Russian government Uh, to try to find common interests. Uh, And in parallel, we're going to engage with Russian civil society. When the president of the United States was in Russia in July of 2009, he spent day one meeting with Medvedev and Russian government officials. And he spent nearly the entire second day meeting with Russian civil society leaders of opposition, student, business community. That's our policy. And as well, we uh, saw Prime Minister Putin charging Secretary of State Hillary Clinton of having sent a signal uh, setting off recent anti-government demonstrations in Moscow. That seems to take it to a personal level. You're the envoy for the U.S. Are you concerned that that personal flavor might uh, end up at your desk? Oh, I've had all kinds of threats and denunciations, uh, you know, being accused of this and that on Russian television, demonstrations outside of the embassy claiming that we're fomenting revolution. And what I would say is two things. One, okay, that's, you know, that's part of the job, I guess. Uh, we didn't expect it, but we can handle that. But the more important point is that those kind of comments are an incredible insult to the Russian 
people, the Russian citizens that went out and demonstrated, they weren't waiting for a signal from Secretary Clinton or Ambassador McFaul to go out to demonstrate for their electoral rights. Uh, that is absolutely a ridiculous way to frame the issue. So I hope moving forward, uh, Russian government officials will see the virtue of having a, a society that cares about uh, political reform. And we'll make this about that as opposed to something that has to do with the United States because that's not what we're doing. Mm. And let's not insult the Russian people uh, who are taking – you know, they're the ones taking the, the future of their country into their own hands. I'm wondering if you've done interviews uh, on state-run television in Russia and what's been the tone of those interviews? I have. I uh, decided in the, in the wake of this criticism that the only way we're going to address it is to, to state our policy and restate it and to engage. So I have been on their Russian state television and, you know, tough interviews, but that's good. I, I appreciate that. I'm on Twitter, uh, something new for me. Right. <laughs> I never had a Twitter account until I, I went to Russia. I think I'm up to 20,000 followers now. That gives me a direct way to communicate with Russian citizens in a way that I, does not have to be mediated through state television or otherwise. We got nothing to hide. Our policy is on the table. Our cards are down. The reset is what we've been doing for the last three years, and we're not changing. And so I see my job as the ambassador out there is to try to, to explain and articulate that to as many people as I can. And even in some rare instances, by the way, I have done diplomacy over Twitter where mm. I've engaged with Russian government officials on Twitter debating a policy with you know 20,000 people uh, watching. That's I think that's a good thing. Michael McFall is the U.S. ambassador to Russia. He joined us from Washington. Congratulations on the posting and thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Each year, millions of Muslims make the annual pilgrimage to the Saudi city of Mecca. The Hajj, as it's known, is still a ways off. This year it's at the end of October. But 47-year-old Sened Hajic has already set off in that direction. That's because he's on foot. He started from his hometown in northern Bosnia back in December, and he's walking all the way to Mecca. So figure it's some 3,600 miles from Bosnia to Mecca, and he covers between 12 and 20 miles a day. So where is Sened Hajic? Well, here's a clue. He's reached the waterway that separates Europe from Asia. We'll check in on his long pilgrimage and get the answer to our quiz later in the show. I'm Marco Werman. Latinos make up 16% of the U.S. population. Many could vote, in theory, but they haven't bothered with the citizenship process. For some, the application fees are too expensive. Now, in these in this current times, $680 is the mortgage or the rent for some families. That story, ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. In Japan today, a group of activists filed a lawsuit. They want to block the reopening of two nuclear power plants near the country's west coast. Nearly all of Japan's 54 nuclear plants have been shut down for safety inspections following last year's disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi plant. The two facilities in Fukui Prefecture reportedly were on target to be the first to be restarted, but the activists say there are active fault lines nearby and that the plants may still not be strong enough to survive an earthquake. Fear of a new nuclear incident is widespread in Japan. It's just one part of the lasting impact of the massive twin disasters that struck Japan last March 11th. Reporter Sam Eaton has been in Japan for us, looking closely at the recovery from the tsunami and Fukushima meltdowns. Earlier, he told me how things are looking in the disaster zone a year later. Well, Marco, in the tsunami region, there has been some progress. You look around and and many of the roads have been rebuilt. Uh, The rail lines are running again. Uh, The debris, all of those houses and crushed cars and and boats has been scraped away. Uh, But now you have these these mountains of waste on the outskirts of town with nowhere to go. And and this is a huge problem. Uh, Japanese recycling laws actually make it so that all of that trash and waste has to be sorted and recycled. This gives you a sense of the Japanese bureaucracy, many believe, is hindering the pace of the recovery. You know, so much of the reporting from the past year has been on the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster and less on the disaster from the tsunami. When you're on the ground, does that square up for you? Well, I mean, these two disasters have very, very different circumstances. On the one hand, you have this huge loss of life and destruction of the tsunami. On the other hand, you have a nuclear disaster that's yet to claim one life, but has taken an incredible psychological toll on the people that are living with the prospect of contamination for years ahead. And so I think the common thread here is the deep and lasting psychological toll that it's taking on the people that are living within these regions. And that that fear is very palpable in these towns. I talked to an old couple living in a, a shelter they'd built on the foundation of their old home. And the woman pulled me aside and she told me that every night her husband still screams in his sleep, um, even though he says he says he's not afraid of the tsunami anymore. Mm-hmm. And in a country where people don't really show their emotions, they're not known for showing their emotions in Japan, a a group of, I had a group of dairy farmers I talked to for the story last Friday. They all were crying when they were talking about going back to their farms for the first time and and seeing the cows that had all died of starvation. And then you have the fears of radiation. Uh, Most of the affected area from the Fukushima fallout, um, it's an area the size of about New Jersey. So scientists say, say there's only a slightly elevated risk of cancer for most of that region. But you talk about, you know, being exposed to that over the long term and the science is, is a little more uncertain and living there and that uncertainty uh, is, is, is just taking a huge psychological toll on the people. It, it is really hard to get a sense of where the fear actually squares with the actual threat of radiation. Were you able to get a sense of that? Well, it is confusing. And this is where I think the distrust of the government really confuses the matter even more. People don't trust what the government is telling them. Um, You know, a lot of people are taking independent radiation readings, and some of those are much higher than what the government is reporting. And this is, you know, the government reports are the ones informing the scientific findings that talk about the health risks. So does this mean that people, especially in the northeast of Japan, where, where these disasters have struck, are they less trusting of their government than a year ago? Was this kind of a Katrina moment? I think it I think it was and I think it will be lasting. I mean, you look at these people, the aid has been slow to come. But at the same time, 
I think the Fukushima disaster really laid bare these cozy ties between the Tokyo government and big business. And people looking forward feel that, that that's going to continue with the recovery. Sam, let's unpack uh, that word recovery uh, just for a moment. When we look at the scale and scope of these events and the toll it's taken on so many people, is Japan on a course to recover eventually from these twin disasters and return to normal? Or were these events that seared themselves onto a nation's psyche and have fundamentally changed things forever? You know, I think it's it's hard to tell. One year is 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 kind of this artificial marker in this process of recovery that's going to continue for for decades, and this really extends beyond just the tsunami and and nuclear disaster region. Culturally, I mean, you really have this kind of disillusion with the idea of nuclear power in a nation that has no fossil fuels for its energy source. I think that's a huge thing going forward as well. People continually are talking about getting back to the basics uh, in this country that went through this rapid industrialization. It's, it's almost like this reality check that, that these technologies really aren't invincible anymore. Reporter Sam Eaton, who's been reporting for the world from Japan on the anniversary of last year's tsunami and nuclear disaster, Sam, thanks very much indeed. Thanks so much, Marco. You can hear the first two of Sam's reports on the recovery from the tsunami and the cleanup efforts around the Fukushima plant at theworld.org. Appealing to Latino voters will be crucial come November. Hispanics now account for 16 percent of the U.S. population. But when it comes to voting, Latinos don't exactly pull their weight. They're less likely to vote than any other ethnic group. Several organizations in Western states are trying to change this. The world's Jason Margolis has more from Las Vegas. Latinos make up 26% of the population in Nevada, but they accounted for less than 12% of voters during the last presidential election. One reason more Latinos aren't voting, many aren't citizens. They might be eligible, but they haven't bothered to go through the citizenship process. In a small trailer in downtown Las Vegas, about 20 people are bothering with the process. Students are quizzing each other on American history, geography, and civics to prepare for the citizenship exam. Who is the chief justice of the United States now? John Roberts. John Roberts. He'll also have to demonstrate a basic mastery of English. These are some sample sentences. Uh, could you read this second sentence for me? The capital of the United States is... Washington. Among the students is Alvaro Martinez from Guatemala. He's been eligible to become a citizen for five years, but hasn't taken the final steps. I was nervous. Were you nervous about the language or the history questions or both? Uh, probably the language. There are tens of thousands of people here like Martinez. I asked political scientist John Tuman at UNLV why there isn't more urgency to take this last step. Well, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of advocates in the community here have talked about the fact that there are hidden costs associated with naturalization. And many immigrants, you know, including people who have lived here for a long time, are under the impression that they need legal assistance in order to apply for U.S. citizenship. And the fees associated with that legal assistance can be anywhere from eight to $10,000. Latino organizations here are trying to counteract the misinformation out there. They're staging so-called citizenship workshops throughout several Western states. The events are nonpartisan. I attended one all-day Saturday event held in a vast ballroom at the Rio Hotel and Casino. Have you ever been arrested, cited, or detained by law enforcement? At about 100 small tables, volunteers are paired up with would-be citizens, helping them fill out the citizenship application. Maria, from Peru, has been a legal resident since 1990. 
I asked her what's taken her so long to apply for citizenship. Before, I don't have time because I was working, working, working. Uh, yeah, I have three children. As to what benefits yeah, she sees myself. in becoming a citizen now. I don't know what kind of benefits I have. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know yet. Many in the room were similarly vague. Maybe because they were uncomfortable speaking in English to a reporter. Still, their inability to articulate the benefits of citizenship makes sense. After all, research shows that in many jobs, citizens don't earn higher salaries than legal residents. So it's often not worth the time, effort, and cost to become a citizen. The application process alone costs $680. Now, in these current times, $680 is the mortgage or the rent for some families. That's Herji Yenis with the Human Rights Campaign, one of the groups organizing this event. She's trying to show people that there are benefits to taking the last step to citizenship. Well, I've been there, so I know exactly what the difference is for me. Uh, the three key things. One is the ability to vote. Uh, two is the ability to apply for jobs that are only applicable for citizens. And then, in, in my case, uh, being a young Latina traveling, um, I was always treated like a mule or a young prostitute when I was trying to just like backpack through Europe. And being the, uh, capable and able to travel with a U.S. passport, it was day and night. Event organizers are stressing the importance of point number one, voting. Artie Blanco with the group Mi Familia Vota spoke to a room of people arriving at the workshop. She says Latinos have power here in Nevada, Las Vegas, the United States. This is where we have a voice. She says we're not going anywhere and we must participate in civic engagement. Fernando Romero isn't convinced speeches like this are enough to motivate Latinos to vote. He runs Nevada's oldest Latino political organization, Hispanics in Politics. I asked him why more Latinos here aren't becoming citizens and why more Latino citizens aren't voting. Primarily apathy. Romero says Latinos care foremost about the economy, education, and health care like everyone in America. But they also care deeply about immigration reform. Latinos in western states voted in large numbers for President Obama in 2008, and Romero says they feel let down. People are just not enticed to come out and vote. However, the more that the Republican primary goes, the harsher that the candidates are speaking out against the Latinos and, and in fact, making us the focal point of their ire, of their concern, of their ills of this country. You know, it's beginning to inspire many to just come out and vote, but not so much in favor of someone, uh, in this case, uh, the re-election of uh, President Obama, but against whomever will be the Republican candidate. The Democrats know this, and they're trying to let Latinos know that the Republican Party is no friend of theirs. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. Tomorrow on The World, we'll hear how Democrats are using immigration reform as a wedge issue in Western states. One Republican strategist says it's smart politics. And I don't blame them. If I had a wedge issue, I'd be using it against them, too. That's tomorrow on The World. For our GeoQuiz, we told you about a Bosnian Muslim who left his home in northern Bosnia three months ago. Senate Hajic is on a pilgrimage. He's walking to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. It's a journey of about 3,600 miles. 
He reached the Bosphorus, the waterway that divides Europe from Asia, and the Bosphorus is also the answer to our geo-quiz. Matthew Brunwasser caught up with Hajic during a brief layover in the Turkish city of Istanbul. Just before hitting the road again, Senid Hajic proudly shows the meager contents of his backpack. Compass. A Quran wrapped in plastic for protection against the elements, a Bible, maps, and flags of the six countries he plans to cross. To be honest, before I started on this trip, everybody was frightened for me, asking how I, as a Muslim, will be able to travel through the Christian countries like Serbia and Bulgaria. But he was never scared, he says. Traveling with very little money, Hajic says he's depended on the kindness of strangers for much of the 600 miles or so he's walked so far. In Serbia, people came out on the street and gave me a hat or some socks. In one case, a professor in Serbia invited me to stay in his house. This Serbian professor, who was a Christian, told me that I was the first Muslim who had stepped into his house in his life. It was a great honor for me. Istanbul has presented a bit of a snag. He spent 20 days here, he says, trying to get permission to walk across the Bosphorus Bridge connecting Europe to Asia. It's only open to vehicles. Hajic doesn't even want to mention the details of how he got it resolved. I'll tell you, this trip has had millions of problems. I'll explain it to you like this. God willing, I'm going to enter Asia today, and then Syria. And I'm not afraid of a tank or a bullet, only God. And then I will come to Mecca, and I will say a prayer for us all. (laughs) He finally leaves the hotel, excited to be on his way, wearing a reflector safety vest and a shabby backpack, with Bosnian and Turkish flags sticking out. It's easy to see how his eccentric character endears him with many that he meets on his way. An old Turkish wise man appeared, and when he saw that I came from Bosnia to Istanbul on two feet, he offered me money to sit on an airplane and go directly to Mecca for the Hajj. But I rejected this. He must travel by foot, he says, because God told him to in a dream. His act of faith is not just for his own benefit, but for everyone he meets along the way as well. By this act, I am proving that everything I do is for the love of God. For all the riches in the world, I would never stop what I'm doing. Walking through this city of 13 million, in a fitting parallel with his bizarre quest, we run into a group of tourists from Bosnia. Hajic is clearly well known in Bosnia and doesn't need an introduction. After pictures are taken and greetings exchanged, Hajic is back on his own. He's not even halfway there yet, but Hajic has already learned a lot. The point, my friend, is learning the meaning of thank you. The poor people who live in the countryside love God and support me with generosity. The rich people in the cities, they love their ATMs. After walking the more than 500 miles from Istanbul to the Syrian border, Hajic says he plans to continue through Syria. It's a bit risky, he admits, but with God's help, he says, he won't feel fear. He plans to wave a Syrian flag with the word victory written on it and pray for the victims of the conflict. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. What's it like to walk in the well-worn shoes of Senate Hajic? You can see our slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Israeli forces and Palestinian militants exchange fire in and around the Gaza Strip for a fourth day today. Militants in Gaza have been firing rockets into southern Israel, while Israeli airstrikes have killed several Palestinians inside Gaza. The world's Matthew Bell went to Ashkelon, one of the Israeli cities targeted by rocket attacks. He says people there are worried. You can see it and feel it in the streets. If things aren't, aren't so busy, there aren't that many people out and about. Uh, this was the second day that kids had off of school. So, so people took off the day of work. They had their kids at home. They're wondering how long is this going to go on? When can the kids go back to school? Um, there have been no rockets that have landed in inside Ashkelon uh, itself. But just walking around town talking to people, absolutely, they, they are concerned. And they're just not sure how long this will go on. And the rockets coming in from Gaza, I mean, are, are they uh, landing so sparsely because the Israeli anti-missile and anti-rocket defense, is that effective? What, what's new with that? It, it's been absolutely effective, Marco. That You're referring to the, the anti-missile system called the Iron Dome. And according to the Israeli military, that that system has been so effective, it's taken out mid-flight something like three dozen incoming rockets from Gaza. The system is not foolproof, though. Uh, yesterday in Beersheba, another town in southern Israel, there were two rockets that did come into the city and landed. One hit a school and there was substantial damage to the school. And a woman today, um, also in another Israeli town, Ashdod, was injured by shrapnel. So, so it's not perfect, but according to the Israeli army, it's working very well. And who's sending uh, these rockets in from the Palestinian side, from, from Gaza? I mean, because it seems the Hamas leadership is, is keeping its cool for the moment. Right. This latest round of back and forth started on Friday when the Israelis say that they had intelligence that the leader of a Palestinian militant group called the Popular Resistance Committees uh, was planning a cross-border terrorist attack. The Israelis uh, killed the the militant leader and his assistant in a car uh, in Gaza with a missile strike. Um, the Popular Resistance Committees and another group, Islamic Jihad, uh, both said that they were going to respond uh, with rocket attacks. It's just gone back and forth with rocket attacks and then strikes from, from the Israeli side, airstrikes, uh, missile strikes, and it's now in its fourth day. Right. And uh, uh, on the Palestinian side, uh, 21 dead there. Uh, as those civilian casualties mount, wh- what is the danger of escalation? Can Hamas keep their cool? That's that's the big question. The, the latest quote that I've heard attributed to Hamas was that they're not ruling out getting involved in this fight, but so far they're not joining in. Uh, I think the Israelis, by all indications as well, don't want a big fight uh, with Gaza right now, with all of the uncertainty in the region, with the situation with Iran. It just doesn't seem like the Israelis want to to get into a big fight with Hamas either, and that is to, to launch a ground incursion or to launch more serious airstrikes and then risk having Hamas join the fight and having hundreds, maybe maybe even thousands of rockets coming into Israel. So does that imply a, an end in sight for this seemingly tit-for-tat exchange in the last four days? The thing is, you know, these things can escalate and, and spin out of control. Um, everyone here says, look, if, if a rocket comes into Israel, say, hits a, a school, kills a bunch of civilians, it's a game changer. It could be the same thing on the other side. Um, if, as you mentioned, the, the civilian casualties inside Gaza continue to mount, uh, there have been a couple of civilians already killed there. That could be a game changer as well. The world's Matthew Bell in southern Israel. Thanks for staying on top of the story, Matthew. Thank you, Marco.
We end our program today with a touch of tango blues. The singer Maria Volonté is best known for her classic tango tunes, but she's injected a bluesy element into her latest album, as we hear from reporter Beto Arcos. Maria Volonté grew up in a small town just outside of Buenos Aires. She was one of six sisters. Their father filled the house with music and art. Volonté recalls those years in the song she named after her hometown, Itusaingó. I started as a singer-songwriter playing literally on street and plazas of Buenos Aires in the 80s where when Buenos Aires was a big explosion of democracy relief and re-encounter with democracy after long years of dictatorship. Then in the 1990s, Volonté fell in love with the classic tangos of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. She recorded a number of tango albums and toured the world. She won the Gardel Prize, Argentina's Top Music Award, and was nominated for a Latin Grammy. But with all her success as a tango singer, Volonté felt there was something missing. So she went back to the singer-songwriter side of her career. In her latest album, aptly titled Nueve Vidas, or Nine Lives, Volonté brings together the many influences that have helped shape her. That includes some renowned singers who inspired her to hone her own voice. Strong women, now these characters, you know, coming from Piaf, Amalia Rodriguez from Portugal, Chabuca Granda from Peru, uh, Violeta Parra from Chile. I was strongly inspired both ways through the vision of women, different visions about the world. I think all that not only pushed me to, to you know, this need of reinventing this do uh, new, new versions of these songs, but also all of them is in my songwriting, for sure. Currently on tour in the U.S., Volonté is heading in a new direction. This time, she's exploring the confluence of two musical traditions. Blues and tango, born in sin on the margins of society, from people who had lost a lot. I think tango and blues have a lot in common, and uh, our songs are completely infused, both perfumes together, put together. Maria Volonté is taking her Blue Tango tour to Austin, Texas, performing at the South by Southwest Music Festival this Friday and Saturday. For The World, I'm Beto Arcos. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. Cuánto lo amaba. <música>
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, online at plowshares.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.